Escape from Plan A. Um, Fitzgerald at one point had written about the stories that he said the rich aren't like you and I, and Hemingway is supposed to have quipped, yes, they have more money. Well, Hemingway, uh, like on many things, was wrong. Uh, the rich are different, uh, because when you have that much money, then human beings become disposable. Even friends and family become disposable and are replaced. And when the rich take absolute power, then the citizens become disposable, which is in essence what's happened. Um, there, there is a very callous indifference. I mean, these people, and C. Wright Mills wrote about this, power elite, they're utterly cut off. I mean, the only people they ever meet who are members of the working class are people who work for them. They're gardeners or they're chauffeurs. Uh, they, they live in self-encased bubbles. They have no real contact with reality. I mean, they don't even fly on commercial airlines. Uh, and yet they have absolute power. Now that becomes very dangerous politically. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, this is Teen. Um, quick uh, housekeeping, as usual. Uh, if you like the podcast, the podcast podcast keeps growing, as I've mentioned. Um, the best thing you can do right now is to give us a rating. Um, ratings really help get the pod out, um, and I think it's a big part of why it's been growing. So, and again, if you want to reach out to us, um, we always like feedback. Editor at gmail.com is the email address, so you can find us there. Um, okay, so uh, today I've got uh, Jay. Jay, what's going on, man? It's your comrade speaking. How's it going? Yeah, comrade Jay, what's going on? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and comrade Q, what's going on, Q? What's going on, everybody? Yeah, it's been a while since uh, you and I have potted together, and I've not potted with Jay before, so I'm pretty excited about um, about this one. Yeah, this should uh, be a new breeding ground for ideas. Yeah. So the uh, the theme of the, I'm not titled the pod yet I guess in my head but I I figured it's a it's a coming out pod of sorts because I got some feedback uh, where someone had had mentioned that they liked Plan A because we were we seemed to be left leaning but not either you know fully on board with the standard liberal or conservative agenda and uh while i agree with that uh, it's vague it doesn't you know i think what's left out of that which is i think partially our own doing is that we rarely really explicitly talk about uh our politics and you know where we as individuals sort of stand and you know in the discord chat and stuff where i talk to you guys mostly we have tons of political talk i think um it would be surprising would you guys agree that like you know, we're really talking about politics most of the time, not just like, you know, Asian American issues. Right. Um, and I think that that's a that's an important part of uh, at least our conversation, our private conversations, which for some reason, you know, we've not really fully kind of fleshed out before. So I thought maybe we could use this this podcast episode to kind of go into it. Um, I don't know. Would you guys agree with that sort of uh, characterization of how we usually talk? I mean, ourselves. you can only talk about how much you like jelly versus tapioca in your bubble tea so much, you know? Like. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it runs dry. Um, I'd say that most of our Discord chat is just talking like current events mostly. And I mean, this is pretty clearly established when we just talked about uh, what Plan A was focused on during the kind of starting stages is that it's not just Asian Americans talking about Asian American issues, but Asian Americans talking about issues, period. So us having thoughts on everything that's happening in the current political moment is is valuable. So that kind of is reflected in the way that we talk about in our Discord too. 
But yeah, and even even though we talk about current events um, and 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 politics and foreign policy and uh, American ideology, things like this. Um, I don't think we ever really, we rarely, even amongst ourselves, kind of explicitly state what our political positions are. I don't know if we really know what it is, but I gather that the the sort of common thread is that we all tend to be pretty leftist. And I say leftist in the, I think in the in the sort of, uh, would you call it like the orthodox sense of the word? We're not, I, at least me, I don't really find myself aligned much at all with American liberalism. And I would say that left is not liberalism plus. It's not liberalism, but more liberal. But it's it's actually, a, to me, a fundamentally different orientation. Uh, I, I've not really planned out what I was going to say about this, but is that as a starting point? Would you guys agree with that? Or I think I think the starting point when I first mm-hmm. started listening to Plan A is at minimum I thought everyone was left of center, and that's like the true left of center, like Social Democrats, DSA, S type of politics mm-hmm. you know i'm canadian so we have it as like maybe the original ndp uh, the dsa for those just being the democrat socialists yeah. of america yeah. and alexandria yeah. ocasio cortez would be their most famous uh front um, runner right now yeah front, yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. and then as time My goes on by the i think way. we kind of you know there's a little bit of littering of like oh maybe they're actually left of that Maybe mm-hmm. they're closer to the right hand of Mao, for instance, which is a good thing to hear. <laughs> Not a bad thing. In some circles. <laughs> for me, that's almost, that's almost uh, literally true. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, it might have to do. And so maybe we should define what that means. Um, I mean, for me, uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's a core. I, I think to me that a leftist is someone who really sees things through the lens of political economy. And I think to some extent, and I'm not going to 100% back this, but I think that to some extent leftist is a sort of American euphemism or Western euphemism uh, for Marxism, for Mm -hmm. Marxist. Absolutely. And I I do think that, you know, one of the things about leftists is it's not really that I take liberal positions, though often I do agree with the liberals over the conservatives, um, for example, I do believe that, you know, the role of government should be larger than it currently is, not less. I think that, um, you know, I think that the state should play a more central role in things than it has been allowed to or in a different, more autonomous way. It's, to me, it's mostly been captured by capital. But I think that 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 that's really for me. And uh, this is totally incomplete. So I really hope you guys come in here and save me. But I do think that the, at least for me, the starting point seems to be that you know a lot of stuff is seen through the lens of a critique of capitalism and that's where a lot of things start yeah i would definitely agree with that assessment um i just want to kind of jump in to say that marxism or i guess leftism as our uh, favorite euphemism right now is just a framework for us to look at the world and more specifically uh the tools necessary to organize a society that might be classless or to lack the obstructions that currently exist that create a uh, class stratification and, you know, this is pretty important given the way that we look at global threats like uh, imperialism and the way that capitalism seeks to exploit nature and create things like global climate change. It's just a, a framework for us to kind of evaluate all of these threats or uh, situations and then try to identify solutions or organize or create uh, change. I think, you know, I'm just going to say something, make it a little bit more simple. <laughs> 
I mean, I think it's really important to just look at the means of production, which I think people kind of get, even just, you know, those that aren't familiar with Marx, they kind of get an idea. It's basically the ownership of the stuff that makes money, Mm -hmm. let's just say. I know it's more than that. And that gives people an idea of, okay, when you look at things, you start looking at things of who's benefiting the most and who has ownership of the things that benefit all of us. And then all of a sudden, things become a little bit more clear. Yeah, I think and I don't think a lot of that is actually even that controversial. I think I think the controversy is questioning it. Right. But but the the idea of private ownership of capital and things like this, I mean, they're all there's really it's it's all based on just sort of plain fact. Right. I think I think what really defines it is is not really the 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 um, objective conception of the world, which largely goes uncontested in terms of that. It's just whether these things are good or whether these things lead, you know, whether these things have really negative effects. Um, and so that's the premise of the pod. Um, what I'd like to kind of discuss a little bit, though, is how we got to where we are kind of as people, because it's not for me anyway, I've never been part of an organized leftist group. I, I was not like a you know, I wasn't, I've never been a very political person and I didn't join any campus groups or anything like that. Um, I, I, I don't really know how I got to this point <laughs> other, than, uh, other than just sort of naturally gravitating towards, um, uh, towards finding that leftists had um, uh, more explanatory power and that what they said tended to vibe with kind of how I just tended to see things. And um, I do think that there was a big component of it in terms of like my family and upbringing. And I think there was a socialist bent in a, in a historical tie to communism in my family, which never, I, I don't think that that, I mean, leaving aside, you know, capital C communism, which is not the, which is, which is not what we were, um, the, you know, the idea, the socialist ideals and stuff def- definitely left their mark on my family. And I think that I just grew up with that around me. Um, and so eventually you come to rediscover it. Um, did you guys have that? Did you guys have that in your family at all? Like, were, were, was it, was it part of how, you know, family discussions around the dinner table kind of went, that kind of thing? Uh, okay, I'll, I mean, I'll answer that really quickly. Just... Yeah. For myself, so I am have a mostly a South Indian background, and so just to give a little bit of context for those, I mean, India is a complicated place. I don't really understand India right now either. <laughs> but part of it is that, in, in the diaspora, you'll notice that most people are upper caste. You know, maybe they had money coming into Canada or the U.S. Maybe they didn't, but either way, there's some kind of social capital that they came in with. My family never came with any of that. And so my family never really spoke much about politics per se, but there was always at least a left-leaning kind of belief that always kind of permeated conversations on how you treat people. And that's really important because sometimes when you're in, especially with, maybe within the Asian sphere, if you're in an oppressed category, you are more likely just to internalize actually, or, I mean, have an affinity, let's say, towards leftist beliefs. So for my parents, and so my last name is really my dad's first name. And I never knew that until I was in my 20s. And that's because there were specific policies in the states that my parents were born in that eliminated last names. (laughs) Like, 
you don't have your last name because it's related to your caste. So they just got rid of last names. And so if you ever meet any Tamil people that have last names, most likely they're diaspora. Maybe they're from South Africa. Maybe sometimes the Malaysian archipelago. And then some of them actually left that state and went into like Delhi or whatnot as uh, or was, whatever. Was the idea that the uh, the last name had uh, was a signifier, uh, like that's, a class signifier that, kind that's of thing? Right. Or, or so it? certain I names see. like Iyer, uh, Iyengar, those are names that are associated with your caste, which would be like the priestly caste or the whatever merchant caste, things like that. I and see. then for yeah. myself, we would never, I mean, we actually don't really have cast names per se anyway, because I'm actually someone who doesn't have a cast because we were tribal people. But it was so significant that within this state, they got rid of last names. So I think that shows there's like a lasting effect. And when you go into a new country, do you really forget that? Is that something that gets removed? Uh, I don't, I mean, my parents tried to not tell me these things or explain these things, but they they come up once in a while. Yeah, I definitely agree with uh, Jay's point that their existence in the hemisphere is kind of intrinsically affected by the political conditions that they were in. My family comes back from a Southeast Asian background, and so that is just an area rife with the effects of U.S. imperialism specifically. So really the only reason why I'm even alive is because of kind of the refugee programs that were instituted, you know, by U.S. conservatives and liberals alike during like the late 70s, early 80s that allowed it for refugees to come to the United States in the wake of the wars that were waged in that area. So, so this makes me a little bit conflicted given that the communities that I live in and the childhood that I uh, kind of harbored was built within these communities that were only made possible um, by individuals who existed in that diaspora that required them to kind of believe in the, the beneficence of the U.S. foreign policy and the beneficence of, of the U.S. being able to kind of give us the visas to live in the country in the first place. So that's kind of this uh, tug of war uh, ethically and politically that I've had to deal with uh, for quite some time. And it's something that my parents probably know a little bit about, but it kind of only permeates when we're having conversations at the dinner table about like Trump's policies or whatever. Um, and it, it comes up for sure, but I don't, I'm not sure that it's understood as anything more than just uh, simple liberalism. I think that's, um, that's a really, really important dynamic that's going on with immigrants in this country broadly. Cause so many, immig- and it's not just Asians. I mean, if you look at, you know, Latin American immigrants, immigrants that come in, I mean, mm-hmm. we have this popular conception of them as all being like, you know, the laborers and stuff, but that's not really the case. I mean, you just go to Miami and meet some people, you realize that's that right. that's, yep. it's really much more, it's much more, it's much bigger than just that. Um, and so, I don't know, take an example of like, you know, um, wealthy Brazilians or Venezuelans that come to this country mm-hmm. or yep, Cubans. Exactly. And I think a lot of that does kind of remind me of like my, you know, my family's coming over here. And um, there is, I think, um, there is that tension, whereas like, I kind of had a hard, I knew about the fact that like, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, you know, was in Moscow, was a communist until he wasn't. And that the, you know, a lot of the Chinese that came over here who were nationalists, so to speak, well, the nationalists, their origin was, you know, in Moscow, in Soviet Russia, in Soviet Russia. It wasn't, you know, they weren't, 
they they only became aligned with the Americans sort of later um, during the, the you know during the uh, civil conflict in China. So they're to me they're it's it, as a second gen. Um, they're it's weird because that first gen that comes in here knows that context to some extent. They kind of know why they're aligned with America with the U.S. You know, because they, they, there is a whole history and a life experience that kind of dictated whether they were aligned with, say, you know, the Communist Party at home or the sort of Nationalist Party that's aligned with Americans and stuff. And they come mm-hmm. here and they so they get it. But the second generation doesn't really have that firsthand direct experience of that complicated system of alignment. And I, I see a lot of people like, my, you know, I I. I see, I see a lot of that among the peers, like other Chinese Americans that grew up in a similar way as I did, that they a lot of them just internalize the sort of very pro-America. And I don't mean like, do you love your country or not? I mean that they they just were all about, you know, America as this sort of infallible ideal uh, and that there was just no questioning to that. And I feel like because they didn't have the context of their parents what became a sort of compli- what was a complicated calculation of alignments and stuff just became ideological mm-hmm. for that can, second generation. Can we talk about our parents for one second? Because yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe because I'm uh, Canadian as well. So, you know, sure. when we're, I mean, as Canadians, we just kind of follow the U.S. and the British and whatever NATO <laughs> says, right? So are it's, we a part of it? Are we not a part of it? <laughs> Like, I don't really know. And apologize. Yeah. And apologize for Sorry. it. What are, what are we doing? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I just don't understand how I know so many uncles out there that, you know, later, you know, when you talk to your parents or anyone first generation and you're a second generation kid who's in their 20s and 30s, you just, sometimes they just don't tell you anything. And it's really freaking frustrating. I mean, I never knew mm. my last name was my dad's first name. Until I was like twenty four, yeah. right? Like <laughs> absolutely so ridiculous. So as as time goes on, like so, you know, my father and my mom, they talked about the self respect movement, maybe in in my twenties or, or late later teens. And that was like a social democratic movement in South India and is related mm-hmm. mostly to caste and, you know, that kind of politics as well. It's a little bit although it's left of center, not proper leftist it really has a leftist flair to it i feel they're big they're Mm. big fans of protesting and activism and then more stories have come out like one of my uncles he's from nepal was not only a communist he was like a secret spy and (laughs) he literally worked for the monarchy and exactly all the juicy stuff comes out yeah and then and i I may i may go on a tangent on this because i wanted one of the questions i always get in uh, Asian areas is why do Chinese and Indians particularly get along? Why do Indians feel like they get along with East Asian and Southeast Asian bros? But in Malaysia, a lot of my uncles, some of them worked with the communist party there. And that was not just like a communist party that, you know, sipped on tea and read Karl Marx. That was a communist (laughs) party that had, I think it was like till technically 1989 it was disbanded and was in a protracted people's war and had two wars and fought the british and the malaysian government yeah and wow. jungle commies jungle it, commies. It's proper jungle <laughs> commies and uh you know and this, yeah. this could be a tangent i don't know if it's if we have time for this per se one thing that's interesting about it is 
you know, it's so most Southeast Asian comics are hilariously like more Chinese than the other ethnic backgrounds. Like it's it's a thing that happens. I guess Vietnam would be uh, would be different, but in Malaysia, I would say like twenty to thirty to forty percent of the communists, you know, depending on what time, because it's been such a long time, were were Indian. So they were like Indo Malaysians, and then of course lots of Chinese, and then they actually the Malays were probably the most the minority, which is very interesting, I find. And so you just learn all these stories mm. as time goes on. And I sometimes feel like there's a complete disconnect between the first generation and second generation. Maybe it has something to do with the time period of like that 1940s to 1980s. But these stories just come out later. And then all of a sudden the kids are like, oh, I'm a big fan of this. Why did you tell me about this? Mm. It's because we're too busy feeding you. Is that what's happening? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's the debt. And I feel like I feel like uh, part of it was just that you know, um, I don't want to go too into this whole context theory, but that the I guess the the experience of moving to either Canada or to the U.S. it, it does it was it's by comparison such a wealthy society, especially at that time. And when my parents came over in the early '70s, it wasn't hard at all, even as a immigrant. With if you had some skills uh, to break into that upper middle class uh, pretty you know pretty easily, that America seemed to be devoid of those political concerns. It like it they didn't think that there were the same class issues in America that seemed to define this chaotic existence back in Asia. And I think that was pretty universal for Asians. So when people say there's no you know when people do say that there's no meaning or that Asian American is just like what, half the world's population, you're all going to get thrown under a single identity. I mean, I understand that criticism. I think it's a valid criticism, but I think you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater either because there is there is a common history of colonialism and resistance to colonialism that kind of permeates throughout Asia, um, from South Asia all the way up to, you know, East Asia. And um, a lot of, I suspect, our parents' generation came over to escape that sort of common chaos to some extent when the and, doors and, were opened and, and all the at the same time to us. I feel may have actually directed them as well as the non-communists to kind of just take up hustling and making sure their kids are well fed and go to schools and things like that. Is that kind of part of it as well? Uh, you mean just a basic? You're saying they just came to for basic provision, right? Like yeah, just a, like just that's what a... they were focused on. All of a sudden, you wouldn't have to think about the politics anymore because you come to this wealthy country, and yeah. now you can focus on your own survival. Because, I mean, depending where you are, it's not necessarily easy. Sometimes there is language. Sometimes there is education. Sometimes there is racism. Mm. There's all kinds of stuff going on, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're not. And you, and you, it's a new country. Anything can happen. And I think that's. I think that's part and parcel of the same thing, meaning like I, I feel like I, I'm just trying to step into their shoes, but I feel like a common thing, a common mindset among all the uncles and aunts that I grew up with, I, you know, I mean that in the sort of community sense, was that they just, you know, at the, they could focus on raising a family, they could focus on home improvement and DIY, and at the same time, they did, they they were not it was a relief to them to not have to focus, uh, you know, on all the crazy political shit that was going on in Asia. And and, uh, in Taiwan, like, for example, where my parents came from, Taiwan is, 
it's fucking crazy and it's been crazy to this day and and so just focusing you know focusing on the economic striving here was a full-time thing it 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 got results and there was no reason to be political so mm-hmm. i think that that's one of the that's one of the things that kind of marked that second generation i feel like it is very common uh jay to hear immigrants say that their parents never talked about those things because i don't think they really they didn't they wanted to forget a lot of that stuff i feel and they wanted us to just sort of like become american i think that was even even my parents more or less felt that way even though they were a lot more politically charged than other um you know other families in the in the community um and i i question whether that did us good or did us bad given where we are right now i that's that's my that's the thing that i question now because I'm starting to find that having um, a you know a political legacy, tying yourself a lot or under like having some legacy, family legacy or you know ethnic legacy that helps you understand where it is you stand in the world here is important because it's a lot more chaotic now than it was you know 15 years ago even, and it's starting to be like if you want to properly understand and participate in American society or Canadian society, you kind of have, it's kind of good to know that stuff. That's Mm, definitely, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that brings up a really interesting point, which is kind of the divorce in the political orientation between individuals who were here before the 1965 nationality and immigration act and then individuals who came after. So there was talking about Asians, Asians specifically, there was this long tradition of Asian American specific radicalism that existed on college campuses, um, existed uh, during the time of Yuri Kochiyama, Grace Lee Boggs, all individuals who had been here for multiple generations were fighting uh, for civil rights along people like uh, Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King. But all these individuals are almost erased from the picture of what it means to fight for civil rights, to, to advocate for yourself in the political arena in a radical manner to organize uh, because of these like narratives that are pushed about Asians who come over here and you know just attempt to model success, buy in, um, and because of that, that that history is is erased. That the it's erased in favor of like incrementalism to uh, just kind of operate within the political context that's available, rather than to imagine yourself outside of that context when your family's already been here for for multiple generations and there's a legacy of individuals fighting alongside people like Huey P. Newton of the Black Panthers even. Um, to, to have individuals who are in your life to have gone through those things is something that as immigrants, as refugees, the current state of Asian Americans uh, simply doesn't have. Yeah. There's a ter- it, Jay, isn't there a term? Uh, a, I love this term. ABCD, American Born Confused Desi. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, f- I find that f- so funny uh, because the for us for us it's just it's see like for the chinese it's not funny at all it's uh, it's just boring it's just we just call it abc american born chinese the inclusion of confused in that it adds a spin and a judgment that i find fucking hilarious and also quite accurate in the sense that um i do feel that the 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 asians of asia from our homeland from you know from south india from from southeast asia from china like when I go back there, um, maybe not so much me because I do care about it, but I think that there is a that there is a view of like Asian Americans um, to have kind of been mind wiped, and especially that second gen, 
to not really know what the fuck is going on. And the thing is, like, I always thought, you know, I think there's an assumption that what we don't know about Asia, we do know about America. But I don't think that's true either. <laughs> right? um, I think we're just confused all around. Um, I, I mean, to, so, to, to Q's point, I do feel yeah. like, uh, can I call you T? I feel like it should be JQ and T. I just like that yeah. a lot. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, get a whole acronym going. Yeah, yeah. JQ and T. Comrade T. Comrade T, there we go. So Comrade T. But, I mean, to Q's point, like, I do feel that the inclusion of Asian Americans in radicalism shows that Asian Americans are a driver of their knowledge production as mm-hmm. well as their activism and that they really do understand America through a political economy lens or a Marxist lens as well. And it's just something that has been, I mean, there's definitely a mismatch there when you go back to Asia, I think that's true. And uh, just like as an example, I do feel like, for instance, maybe not the Caribbean, but like the Indian diaspora from, you know, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, even Fiji, South Africa, they are more comfortable living in India versus North American born in many ways. Interesting. Uh-huh. And, That's very interesting. But it's because we do have this concrete framework on how to view the world. I don't think it is so confused, at least anymore. And for the political mm. aspect, I think there is definitely a mismatch there because I think Asian politics is a little bit messier than American politics. I know it's a little weird to say that, but at least for South oh, Asia... Oh, it's totally true. It's it's totally true. Yeah. yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not sure what... It, I mean, I feel like you could probably make judgments on specific countries. So in that sense, mm-hmm. I don't know... I mean, I can understand why Asians think we're, we're like just confused. That, that makes sense. But I think we are, to our hearts, really understand the and and, you know it's a something you learn there's a direct trajectory towards it especially for politics as time goes on i'm i'm pretty proud of asian americans like i don't think asian americans become this like lifeless i mean as much as we talk about them i don't think most asian americans become like these white (laughs) feminist liberals you know like i really don't feel that and and (laughs) i i know we spend so much time on them that's our favorite trope yeah the 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 fucking the fucking normie yappy right you know which which i basically am it's like i can't even really separate myself from the normie yappy it's really a form of self-loathing but anyway as as long as we all hate business majors it's all okay yeah 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 so for q Um, i had to ask you though like is it maybe it's because for myself like for being tamil unlike my my some of my family's from Sri Lanka. It's a little bit different. I feel like the first generation, because they came from a place of trauma and like not the aftermath of, you know, what they would call genocide or, you know, some kind of nation state building and oppression. Right. That it's really, it's a little bit different. Like there's a different context that is occurring. Is that, do you think that's true for the Viet side? I mean, I'm just getting from, from Viet friends myself. They, talk about more not necessarily american but i mean they're very open about their anti-communist beliefs yeah i'd I'd go ahead and say that the viet community specifically is rampantly anti-communist um there's or there's entire rallies about situations that are going on in vietnam that are specifically against things that are being done by the vietnamese government about censorship about 
the imprisonment of political uh, organizers and protesters. They're organizing against situations that are happening because of China imposing its will upon Vietnam. It's a very complicated situation. Um, and emotionally, um, a lot of the older folks are very much invested in what's currently going on back in the motherland. But for the younger folk, it's it's almost like watching a, a vestige of something that they don't understand. That it's just like this this structure, this history that is entirely divorced from them. Because I've seen individuals who talk about their Vietnamese heritage and talk about their parents as immigrants, right? So that's an entirely separate conversation from being a refugee. And to, to interpret that as simply an immigrant narrative really says something about the way that there's a definitive separation between the experiences of Vietnamese Americans uh, now and then the parents who you know were forcibly uh, removed to the United States or to wherever else. So where does that leave the second generation then, right? Like, so I, this is a question that's relevant to me because the same thing would happen um, with a lot of people that came over from Taiwan. Um, you know, it, the, you know, I read The Sympathizer uh, mm -hmm. by Viet, Viet, Viet Thanh Nguyen, oh. and I, I, I really, uh, you know, I know he stresses the difference between a refugee and an immigrant, mm -hmm. um, but there is... There is a component to which that immigration was not purely... I mean, there is a similarity there in the sense that a lot of the people who came over from Taiwan had under, were undertaking a political project of their own that was similar to what the guy in that book was doing, which was you know, uh, creating and currying favor with the Americans, establishing stronger ties here because of the way that tied into a larger political project in Taiwan, which was uh, actually to retake mainland China. Right. And so they were, in, you know, in, and, and, and in the sympathizer, they were the, there was a project to retake Vietnam from the communists. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost identical. And uh, I, I, I've always been curious where that where does that leave the second gen? You've got a whole you've got the first gen with their heads in the fucking, you know, their 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 heads are in this um, sort of political game of futility. They bought, it. A, they bought it entirely. Yeah. And as an yeah. American, you know, bred, born and bred, I could sort of instinctively understand that nobody gave a shit about any of this stuff, you know, beyond themselves and maybe like one congressman, which is what happened <laughs> yeah. in that book as well. Exactly. So they, they define their political identity with respect to these really, from American perspective, hyper niche, meaningless issues that were maybe on some drawing board over at the State Department uh, and really didn't affect, you know, had no other effect in my life. And there's no way that I could have centered myself around such an identity. It'd be pointless. Mm -hmm. so where does that leave the second generation? What, what do you build on then from, what do you take from them and what do you not get from them? And then how do you fill that? Um, so I think that's a pretty tough discussion, which probably varies basically upon the individual. Um, so to the first point that the Viet Thanh Nguyen talked about that like supposed junta that was going to go back and retake Vietnam, I think that's an entirely fictional depiction. I don't think there was any actual uh, force within the South Vietnamese community in the United States that actually had any real plans to go back. Sentiment was probably there. They wanted to take their country back to, to return to the motherland to a country that was formerly theirs. But to actually have any buy-in from any portion of the federal government to actually support a project that would do so is probably very unlikely at best uh at worst probably naive it almost um, seemed like he was taking that from like bay of pigs 
It was kind yeah, of a, it was yeah, kind of a definitely. Bay of Pigs type adventure that they went on. Yeah, I can see him going for for a bit more of a literary reference in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Um, took some liberties there, but I mm-hmm. I think to the point of it, an individual deciding whether or not they want to care about what's going on in Vietnam specifically, it really is up to the individual. I don't know if you've heard of the situation with uh, Will Win, who was a Yale student who went back to to Vietnam and partook in some protests, and in, in doing so, was actually arrested by the secret police that was implanted within the protests and was basically held within the Vietnamese prison system for I think a couple of weeks before some congressmen had to step in basically the State Department had to step in to get him released. He had to go onto the onto like federal a Vietnamese federal television and talk about how he was remorseful for ever participating and they basically deported him. So he's back in the United States now. Um, but he took an active role in wanting to understand what was going on in Vietnam's geopolitical situation currently. I can't say it's the same for most other Vietnamese Americans. I think for the most part, Vietnamese Americans have kind of, if not assimilated into white American culture, have kind of agglomerized into this pan-ethnic Asian American culture, which still doesn't really leave them any specific cultural or political connection with what is going on back home because it's just you don't live there most a lot of Viet's really don't speak the language and the, the situation is just so complicated with the interaction with china specifically with the state-run government that is communist but participates in you know the global capitalist market and its interactions with uh korea for example and the way that korea is currently intervening in the country it's all extremely messy and for someone to walk through all that context and say like this is something that i want to buy in or to take an active participation in is, is asking quite a bit. I feel like yeah. I feel like we're answering the question about ethnic identity and leftist politics is that it's really messy to make a correlation. I think mm-hmm. the days of you know, like the imagined national leftist beliefs that existed in Asia, CCP, strong Chinese, for Indians it was socialist Indians, they destroyed English, they destroyed the British they believed in uh, redistribution of the bourgeoisie, which were the British at the time. That kind of narrative of nation building, socialism, and nas- uh, ethnic identity, I don't think it quite it exists so simply within the Asian American diaspora. I feel like there's yeah. other things that pull them or push people away. But- yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I think there is an American, a very strong... Uh, leftist tradition in America that I think is really tied with the civil rights movement that um, I don't, and and this is a difficult, this is a tricky subject, I think, because what you don't want to do is as a, as an Asian American, try and subrogate or step into the shoes of that struggle Mm -hmm. as if it were your own. I think that, that, that needs to be respected, but there are things about it that make me, it's, it's something that I can, used to sort of process our our um our situation let's say and so for example uh malcolm x i think malcolm x spoke towards something that i think asian americans do struggle with which is exactly what we're talking about is how how do you where do you go after there's this sort of umbilical severance you know, between your life and sort of the thread of your everyone that came before you in your lineage, right? And I think that there was a sort of like 
in American sort of liberalism, uh, there was this sort of encouragement of ethnic minorities to sort of find, f- sort of mystify their their roots and sort of turn it into sort of like an ethnic, like an ersatz ethnic identity. And so you would get stuff like Kwanzaa and uh, <laughs> in a sort of, you know what I mean? Like right. you would get the, you know what I mean? Like you, there was a sort mm-hmm. of, and I, and honestly, I think Black Panther kind of served the, I mean, Wakanda, right? Like, yeah, it was, uh, Wakanda it was Pan-Africanism. And mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism, but of an imaginary type. Right. And, uh, and there is to me, I think a similar tendency uh, though not as well, I mean, it's it's not as developed, but there is a tendency by Asian Americans to do a, a somewhat similar thing. And I felt that as an example, if you just look at media, that Crazy Rich Asians basically was the same story in many ways as Black Panther, a second yep. generation immigrant in America, goes back to her, the, the homeland, so to speak, to... Can, can I just interrupt for yeah. Wakanda? I mean, I think for yeah. our group, I feel like yeah. leftists and particularly people of color, including Asians, of course, they kind of had this. I'm on, I'm sort of on Killmonger's side to the story. Yeah, I think <laughs> right? God. Mine yeah, is like honestly. the senseless killing and <laughs> nonsense so. of like Hollywood. Trevor's got the Trevor's got Killmonger was right T-shirts for sixty percent off right oh, now. Oh, so Killmonger was one. right, like by far. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, there's a little. Obviously, there's like this Hollywood like. He's just killing people for no reason. You're like, okay, whatever. Hollywood. Yeah, he's seizing the means of production and trying to end yeah. U.S. global imperialism. Yeah, uh, that's hey, like man, I, the I identified with Killmonger straight right. up. Oh my god. Right. Okay, I mean, and T'Challa and all those. Those were like your. Those were the, your cousins that would call you ABCD. That, you know what that, I mean? That, that, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Why don't you the go talk to you for your American accent? Get the hell oh out of god. here! Kind You're like, I'm gonna right. kick your fucking ass, you soy eating motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> You left me. You left me in Oakland. <laughs> but yeah, so like you know, I I mean, so yeah, there's that one part of having the disconnect from Asia. Sure, that's part of it. But I do feel for mm-hmm. the communists, particularly rather than the social democrats, is that there's also this anger that Asian American men and women have, and when they have it, they, it's part. They see that it's also related that they're being exploited. They see all this injustice. They see that they're hustling, that they're running on this rat race, that their parents are doing it, and that their parents seem to be okay with it because, hey, at least you went to grad school. But they're like, no, I'm not okay with this. I see all these things happening. I see my friends, my family that are, you know, in poverty and they're struggling, and that's not okay. And for those that do have relationships outside of the world or just are just aware, they see that, you know, when you're given a lot of education, I know for myself, all this education, it kind of made me look outside of the world. I was like, wow, Western imperialism, neocolonialism directly makes people poorer. Like, just my existence in Canada is means that I'm complicit in the exploitation of, you know, Southeast Asia. That's really fucked up. And I do feel like that anger and that, you know, orientation towards leftism is because about that inherent exploitation of your own labor mm, you mean oh. your own meaning yes. both us here as well yeah. as abroad i don't I, think any of us are millionaires so but yes <laughs> so like <laughs> we are the ones being exploited as well as abroad and True. then i think that really brings yeah and and you're right and i think that's why leftism to me uh it, okay 
I, I agree with you. I would say, let me reformulate. I don't think leftism is really. It's not so much informed by ethnic identity here so much as I think that it provides a framework in which your ethnic identity can be contextualized. Mm. And uh, and I think that um, it's and I think this is the part that I think a lot of people do have uh, is kind of a barrier of entry for Asian Americans is a recognition of how global white supremacy plays into it. I think that's a really difficult topic for people to jump into because we have a lot of white friends. I mean, and we have a lot, we have white bosses, we have white teachers, we get, you know, and I think when people say white supremacy, they immediately think like, is my, is my professor or my boss or my white friends, do they secretly go home and burn effigies of like brown people? And, <laughs> you know, do they, do they don the, do they don, you know, KKK uh, yep. hoods and stuff, which is not really what that is referring to. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think that, and I'm not, f to be honest, I'm not fully sorted out with how that works myself. I think it's a lot more complicated than the current narrative has it to be. Um, but I would say this, I would say that leftism to me context and by what, what I mean by contextualizing ethnicity is that I do feel in the West, in Canada, in America in particular, that there is um, maybe America more so than Canada, that there is a push, there is this uh, pedestalization of the individual. Mm. And leftism really does focus on sort of more on the, on the um, inculcation of a class and group identity. It, it encourages communal, communist communal identities. Whereas in the West, it's extremely... Uh, it's really the individual reigns supreme, and for those for immigrants in particular, I think that it's it's already disorienting to 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 re re relocate yourself, but then on top of that, relocating to a social a society which puts individual identity above all else you don't really have an individual identity. See, I think that's the thing that is, that's, there's another common thread among Asian Americans is a sort of identity void uh, because can, can I, can you, know, you, you about can't that? be your dad. You can't yeah. be your mom. It doesn't work. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know? but that void also so, includes a lot of other Asians that could have a stereotype. And not even, about, not even necessarily about stereotypes. It's how the Asian American community, which is heterogeneous, of course, is that the people that seem to be in charge, sometimes they have their own narrative. And when you have leftist policies or politics or that you want to control your own narrative as well, or maybe you don't really fit into it, all of a sudden that gives a good a good uh, kind of like a, a board to kind of spring off into leftism. For For myself, this is how I would see it. I didn't explain that very well. Sorry. Okay, so for those that are for those that, you know, know brown people, there's a lot of fucking brown people. There's what, like 30 languages that are official and millions of languages and ethnicities and backgrounds and whatnot. But when mm -hmm. you think about Indians in the U.S., you think of, you know, like one or two Punjabi friends that you have. And so we have this typical Indian and this Hindu that has this controlling this narrative of what Hinduism is, what is Indian, what does that mean? But in reality, there's you know, not even including class, who's controlling that narrative. But when you do a class ana analysis, you can see that there's a lot of poor Indian 
folks out there. There's a lot of poor Tamils or a lot of poor Bengalis, whatever, Bangladeshis. They don't get to control that narrative at all. For, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't talk about outside of my ethnicity, but, you know, a lot of people will talk about in the Asian American community that mainland Chinese are changing the narrative and they don't feel included. And this continues for every single ethnic group. In that sense, there's this class contradiction in Asian American stereotypes, probably for everybody, and that for leftists, we always are fighting against that because we always know that if you don't fight against it, it will impact our livelihoods. For Chinese American, so I always talk about seniors because that's just the work I do. For Chinese seniors, you know, there was there's really this huge gap because of the model minority myth. It severely impacts, you know, healthcare and social care for Chinese seniors, for instance. And so, yeah, so I would want to talk about like challenging the narrative. I, okay, I, I think that that's a that's such a good uh, that that to me is the crux of it. I, I think that's the that's the that's the thing that to me that's the cutting edge, so to speak. I think that's where we are. That's where we need to. That's the front line of what I find to be a problem uh, with the American left, which is the way the the way American class politics as it tries to create it there is no class politics but it's they're trying it's trying to form itself i think that the one of the problems exactly is what you're saying is the way it's i mean a left a left here's the thing the reason i do one of the reasons that i do find that left a leftist identity is a is a is an appropriate one for asian american youth um, is because it's a movement that actually needs them it, it cannot be successful without their, not just their support, but their leadership. Uh, and, uh, and, I, I, and I say POC, but Asian Americans, I think, would fall into that. Um, but the, the problem is that I've seen is that the left, so to speak, if we count the DSA as part of the American left, that it, it has the same exact approach to minor, like ethnic, non-white, ethnic racial inclusion it has the same playbook as the liberals, as the, as the sort of centrist liberals, which is to find racial spokesmen and spokeswomen to bring uh, racial issues to the table, which are sort of apart from class issues. They're, they're like, the real thing is class. And we got to deal with race because of historical contingencies. So we need a couple spokespeople, Hugh, you know, brown-hued girl, you... You know, black skin. It's man like a garnish here. at best. Yeah. Well, yeah, and from my perspective, those are inextricable things because if you really want a class politics in America, you, uh, Jay, I think you nailed it. Is there is a contradiction in the way that um, minority that non-white people are represented in these spaces, which is through a racial spokesperson, and there's no understanding of the intricacies of the class distinctions and class the inequality within and, and resentments and conflicts and uh, jealousies and all this stuff that play into uh, Asian American life. And that, that goes to one of the, um, one of the topics that you guys have earmarked on the, the, um, on the topics of discussion is, uh, you know, the, the difference between reactionary and leftist politics and this concept of horseshoe theory, which is, something that I encountered online and in Reddit, which is basically the phenomenon of really, really angry young men. And uh, I think that 
my interest in angry, angry young men is that you have a real substrate of energy there. And the question is, how do you funnel that energy? What, um, where does that anger, what does that anger lead to? And I think it, it absolutely can lead to reactionary politics. It can lead to the, the total contradiction of young men of color, not just Asian, but also black and Hispanic joining white supremacist movements because it values their anger. It, it, it incorporates their anger and, and values it. Uh, and what is, the, what is opposing that? Um, and, and why does that anger exist? So I think before we can answer that question of like, how do we corral and compete for, for that anger so to push it towards um, productive politics, not destructive politics, that the, that the key is to understand the nature of that anger. And I think, Jay, I think you basically said it, which is that the wrong people are speaking for us. You know, and I think that that really is forming that anger. Underneath it is this hypocrisy, right? This is the, the Oxford con a condo principle that we should just <laughs> fucking start every pod with, is that anger is premised on hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy is the ways in which I think Asian Americans have really, you know, what's being said about us out in public and in the mainstream is so, it's not wrong per se, it's just so flat and it's so, it's, to me, it's demeaning uh, to reduce Asian American life to a set of, you know, model minority myth, media representation. Aggregate data. And, you whatever. know, a, a, an ongoing beef with uh, Scarlett Johansson. It's, you know, and, and to just focus on that and then suppress everything else um, is a real, real problem, I think, um, which is why I... I do think I do think that a focus on youth anger is important. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the oversight of the Asian American community. I think this is something that affects the the ways that social democrats or the the DSA specifically have an issue with as well is this this lack of focus on internationalism. And I think that's what really distinguishes the leftist movement or marxists from from simple center left is that there's a focus on the specific ways that actions affect us here, uh, not simply in the context of domestic policy, not simply in the context of media representation, what happens within the confines of this border, but what happens as a result of policies that are enacted elsewhere. So the internationalism that made it possible for individuals to be radicals in the 60s and 70s was a recognition that the struggles of individuals who are being affected by U.S. imperialism elsewhere also affect us here. So Jay talked earlier about how us living in the United States or in Canada allows us to be complicit in, in those, uh, those systems of oppression also requires a recognition that our struggle has to be in solidarity with those who are affected elsewhere as well. And that's something that I think Asian Americans fundamentally lack in the way that they understand, even like media representation. When you talk about crazy rich Asians, let's depict this in a place that is easily the most like neoliberal, hyper capitalist society that we can pick and think Absolutely. of. Let's pick totally. Singapore. Yeah. And then yep. when they so do have criticisms, it, 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 it is very much any other way. Politics, it had to be right? that way. Yeah. So it says a lot about the state of Asian American affairs when crazy rich Asians is the pinnacle of representation for us, that everyone of us can see ourselves within that film. And I think it says something about us too, right? So we look at the film and we think that it's a good thing, but I think the film stares back in a manner of speaking and reflects the current yeah. state of our politics. Yeah. 
And the, the real beef that I have with Crazy Rich Asians is like, look, I don't expect Hollywood to give you some kind of like woke-ass blockbuster. You know what I mean? Sorry to bother but, you, please. <laughs> well, this, yeah, that's the thing is at least with, at least with, uh, with Black Panther, you got the anti-hero. Like you at least saw the existence of that other right. uh, Rachel uh, is the anti-hero conception. <laughs> Rachel, who's What's Rachel's that? the anti-hero because she's not bourgeoisie; she's just an aristocrat, <laughs> <laughs> a labor Wait, aristocrat. So, they get, so, so black Americans get Killmonger and Asian Americans get Rachel Chu. Yippee fucking Kaye. And, and why you professor who's rich but not that rich? <laughs> Number one real estate agent in Flushing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. It's such a good detail. Um, yeah, I, I. So it sounds like, and I would agree with this. I think that 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 leftism there is an there is a uh, um, there is an understanding that leftism because if you're going to focus on economic systems um, as your primary sort of lens or mode of analysis that. Capitalism doesn't respect national boundaries, and so you, the, there is there is an exactly that 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 therefore requires a sort of international global conception of politics, and you don't you, you don't just separate domestic and foreign policy so cleanly like any presidential presidential candidate will do. We'll spend five minutes on domestic policy. We'll spend two minutes on foreign policy, and then yeah. we're going to cut the commercials. Just lip service right? all over the place. Yeah, and it's just like it's just crazy making. And I think you know if you're I'm not saying that everyone's got to do this. I'm just saying that if you, my, this, this is just me preaching politics here. It's just like, if you do care about, I mean, if you do find yourself naturally having feelings about the world and not just yourself, if you feel, if you have feelings about the world and that's important to you, um, that you, that you don't just follow the news that you got to do some reading and you've got to do some investigating and you've got to consider um, the you know you've got to consider the effects of capitalism, what capitalism is first of all, uh, and how what I don't think it's a quite you know and they, they say this here's the other thing I want to say it's like if you if you this is the this is the horrible part about being leftist in America is they will say that you can, you don't have the standing or the right to to critique capitalism if you buy anything. Like, like if you have a you job, have a phone, so you can't. Yeah, be a good I mean, I can't, I can't wait. If to you post use this a cell Twitter phone, man, you've betrayed be the movement. So many memes about this. <laughs> so many, and I think I think it's a fun. I think it's a, it's sort of a barrier to entry, and I think that you know the way I would describe it is like that. You know, imagine like someone who is uh, locked up in prison. And this is this is an extreme example, of course, but I think there is truth to it. Imagine someone who's locked in prison but is writing about liberation, writing about what he or she would do in a in a in a in a in a liberated, free life. Right. And then you were to criticize that person to say, "What the fuck do you know about freedom? You're a prisoner." I think there is an aspect of this economic thing where it's like it's not really just a matter of do you want do you choose to participate and be complicit with capitalism it's about you cannot escape capitalism it's defines everything you can't there is no way to live outside of it right now so um i I think that criticism is completely 
Baseless. I don't know if it's bad. It's not bad faith, but it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, Slavoj Žižek yeah. calls it traversing the fantasy to imagine mm-hmm. a possibility outside of capitalism. Which is probably impossible at this point, right? I'm guessing, right? Like it's, it's, I mean, yeah. but that's I mean, the my, capital, that's capital realism, right? It's just to say that the, the difficulty of imagining it's and but, um, I mean, part of the communist, it, it, you know, ideology is that we do have to use our imaginations and that we do have to think about what we want in society, what is important to society. And we have to reject the fetishism of capitalism, the commodity fetishism. You know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. we all love our phones. Don't get me wrong. I love my phone, too. I'm addicted to it. But life is more than just your phone. And when we rethink on how life ought to be, and then we start changing resources on directing them to things that matter, all of a sudden, life is looking pretty good, I think. it's not. I don't think everyone's going to be really depressed that they don't have their iPhone on them. And my favorite response to the, the dumb phone quote is that, Communist Russia is the reason why the satellites made it possible for us to have telecommunications for phones to work in the first place. So suck on that, motherfuckers. <laughs> are, we, are we ending there? Commie rockets are the best rockets. <laughs> that would be a great place to end. Also, American rockets are Nazi in origin, so don't let's not get too excited yeah, about on, the American now. rockets, all right? Don't, don't get too excited about them. Uh, anyway, I mean, so. <laughs> the imagination part is important. And, I mean, part of, you know, rejecting capitalism, the ideology... So I've been listening to this gentleman named Space Babies. I'm going to definitely send a link. I love him so much. And put it in the yeah, show put notes. Put in the show notes for yep, sure. We'll put it in the show and notes. He yep. just like recently spoke about play. And you know, as Asian Americans, sometimes we are fucking workaholics, and we just kind of forget that life doesn't necessarily need to be about working all the time. Play could definitely be a thing, especially when we one day come to post scarcity. I mean, maybe we already are in post-scarcity. Do we really need to be working 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours a week? I don't really think so. I think there's something going on there. But that imagination is only one part because we also have the tools to do something about it now. And that's why communism and labor, they always go hand in hand. And that's something that we are missing from progressives, surprisingly. Progressives, since neoliberalism, has taken over since the 90s, even their policies haven't been really that great regarding labor. The DSA sounds great when it comes to labor, but that's because America really fucking sucks. Because, right? <laughs> and our unions are dead. And right their now. unions are dead. So their progressive policies are probably still under, like, not as good as the UK. And of course, the Labor Party is barely labor. So there's a lot of, you know, there's just, a different way to look at things as a leftist for things that can happen now. And and this goes from all kinds of range. I think before, because we've just been talking about ethnicity, I want to kind of like highlight something different. Do we have time just for like five minutes? So yeah. like, yeah, absolutely. This is how I feel about like leftist politics in Canada is that it's really brown and really Asian and lots of African, West Indians. And so it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty mixed bag, right? But there's no like, Asian com- okay, for actually one of the, the Marxist Leninist party in Canada was actually started by a Punjabi guy who married a white woman. I don't know how I feel about that, but it is what it is. <laughs> but, you know, she's a, she's a comrade, so, you know, she's cool, I guess. They're a comrade, they're a comrade. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? A- anyway, my point is, like, when I see all these, like, communist movements, especially the young communist movements, they're really 
they're quite Asian and they, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty, they have a lot of people of color representation, but it's not really on ethnic lines. So, uh, in citations, they wrote, or sorry, they were speaking about how in Canada we have a, um, you know, kind of for illegal aliens organization. Like, no, no one is illegal. About citations needed yeah, podcast? Right. It's, uh, it was so nice that they mentioned okay. it. Great podcast. That, like, there's, like, there's the people that started the No One Is Illegal movement in Canada, they're mostly South Asians, I believe, and then some whites. So it's like, for leftist politics, ethnicity, it does have a lot of inclusivity, but it's not done on purpose. Like, it's not like these organizations, like, we need someone brown. There's something organic about it that I really like, and I can't really quite put my finger on it. Well, I think that that's something that the American leftists need to learn from the Canadians, to be honest, because uh, especially about the part you said about it being actually founded uh, by an Indian guy, which is the the key. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) but but regardless, I think the idea being that the um, there need the the, a successful leftist movement has to be led led by by people of color it, it like the concept of an american underclass that that puts white people in all of the i'm not saying exclusively poc but i'm saying in large part it has to be it has to have poc leaders why because you need mass poc buy-in you need mass black buy-in you need mass latino buy-in you need mass asian buy-in you cannot rely on tokenism yeah. to get you and, there. and just and Kamala Harris, maybe we should talk about Kamala Harris yes, for a sec. Can, can, I, can I just um, talk shit Kamala about Canada? Harris I feel like I've been way too nice to Canada <laughs> before I go. Because I really have to say one thing about Canadian leftist politics is I do see a lot of indigenous activists there. But there is actually mm-hmm. not a lot. And it's always been a priority to be inclusive for indigenous people. But I don't know. I mean, I've been part of communes and like I would go to the res- reservations. And for whatever reason there would be like very little leadership for indigenous. So there's a lot of things that leftist politics in Canada can work. I really just have to, I've been too nice to Canada. I got to say Canada really fucking sucks and is an imperialist country. So fair <laughs> enough. It's, it's been noted. It's you're in the log as having lodged, you know, lodged and an objection. We, we, we don't have a black um, Panther party. I mean, I feel like the black Panther party captures the soul. You don't have black Panthers. Do you? In, in Canada. I'm the blackest not... Panther out there. Like, is... <laughs> yeah, guys, he does. <laughs> oh my god well you get the panther part down um so let's talk kamala harris for a sec i guess uh this will be a slightly longer one but i think just i think kamala harris there's, there's if you pay attention to kind of what's going on with like the she's a black candidate even though she's half asian actually she's yeah her, that's right i, I think Thumbel. her mother yeah. is indian american yeah. right she, She's uh, like me, mother's media. So, yeah. yeah. So she's she, but she's half Asian, but she's pretty much seen as a black candidate. Why? And I think this is a big part of why tokenism is what it is. She's coded as black because they need the black vote, so, right? So they absolutely. don't really talk about her Asian side. It's so, you know, and 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 Obama was a fucking Asian dude. I don't care, man. His like, if you look into his background, that's his, why I love he li- he's a. He lived in Indonesia and Hawaii, and his stepfather was Indonesian-Asian. And if you look at a family photo, his sister, his half-sister, half-Indonesian. Her, you know, his in-laws on that side, all Chinese. I mean, he's Asian. Asian. He he carried Ganesh, or Ganapati, the the elephant god in his cheek cane. Like, and it it doesn't seem like... 
nobody does that to tokenize themselves for like Asian American votes. You just do that. That's, that's how he grew up. Yeah, you gotta, believe, you gotta it. believe it. It's too out there. Yeah, he. That's how he grew up. But but see, they 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 code that they code him as black. They code him as a sort of like natural successor of the tradition of the American civil rights movement. Right. And that's because they need him to haul in black votes. And Kamala Harris is, I think, that you know, their playbook is not very imaginative. They're running her up the gut the way they ran, you know, they yep. looked at, uh, you know, the call in Obama on, uh, you know, third and 15. And uh, they were like, let's let's run the Kamala play, too. Let's run the Obama-Kamala play. It's the exact same thing. And the, the crazy thing about it is that the way that they use identity politics to flatten your race to just mask over all the fucked up things that you do is so despicable. So, I mean, the way that they use Obama as the first black president to kind of gloss over the fact that he drone strike the Middle East more than any other country has ever, um, or his like abhorrent legal uh, immigration policies is the same way that they're going to try to gloss over the exact same way that Kamala Harris destroyed generations of black families as the prosecutor. She was a zealous prosecutor, which is the most despicable route to national prominence, political prominence that there is. That's the Chris Christie route. Okay. Um, And I think that, you know, when Obama was running, I think that there was such a novelty and promise to the even the idea or the optics of a non-white president that there really wasn't a lot of pushback. And I know like someone like Cornell West, who was uh, sort of seen as a... um, you know, a, a jealous interloper or something. And, and his criticisms of Obama were seen as just sort of like, you know, this guy's crazy. He's jealous. He's, yeah. you know, he's, he's from a bygone generation that isn't relevant anymore. They it's were, the they, I mean, they, they leveraged. Yep. Yeah. And they were just a few years away from labeling people like that toxic black masculinity. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that with Kamala, that there is an increase in that. Uh, they're, they're sort of, having to, like you said, flatten, but forcibly flatten. Obama, like, just, we, we self-flattened for him because yeah. the guy is just... It took him for just granted, that, yeah. He was that new and amazing. He was just new and amazing. But I think, you know, we've... I, I think that the magic in the, in the fixation on this idea of a non-white president or a non... or in this case, a, a woman president um, and the identity-based flattening that, you know, the shock of seeing a, a someone other than a white man go for office is kind of worn off. And what we see instead is a active flattening where you they're, they're really not allowed to be criticized, particularly by black people, because they have this in. They're saying, well, if you if if you criticize her, it's because you're, you know, you're 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 misogynist or you're, yeah. uh, you know, or you're not really pro-black, you know, you know, you're, you're buying into these, uh, fucked up, you know, hotep, you know, hotep politics, uh, that, that, you know, have, have been, um, it's just not a good look for you. And I, you know, I, I just find that to be so incredibly aggressive towards people of color that your own opinions are they, they use tokenization to basically suppress you. And I, you know, I see that going on with Kamala and I'm glad that debate's being had. And I think that that is what, that's sort of the front line of what Jay was mentioning about the sort of misrepresentation of, you know, POC, the POC population, the POC community through what, 
a ze- you know a zealous prosecutor that spent her entire time in the California AG office basically acting like a racist white man. I mean, uh, the videos that they have been posting of her are just insane, like, evil, just straight up evil. The one where she's like laughing about going after, like prosecuting uh, truancy, truancy in San Francisco. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> this, this is horrible. And hey. she was like, mm, you know, I uh, I said I got to get tough, and I'm going to get tough, and you all need to, you know, see, you know. It's just this is what I'm talking about. There's a, just real anger in me, you know, being forced, us being forced to sort of um, fall in line, fall in line based on a shared identity. Uh, that you know, uh, I don't know. That I guess that's the front line, and and I think that um, that to me is kind of when we talk about eth- ethnicity and leftism. That's kind of where I think it interplays. Is like who is speaking for us, and why isn't our politics like our real politics, not represent, not media representation? I'm not saying this stuff doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's there's way more to it than just that. Yeah, there's you know, some it, concerns and material reality that have to be addressed in conjunction with representational politics. In conjunction too. with that, absolutely. And plus, all the media representation you're going to get is going to be completely ideologically biased towards not questioning, you know, right. towards being, you know, supporting, uh, you know, pro-capitalist. Uh, Pro-police, like Black Klansmen is the same thing. Yeah, or or the hate you give. The National Review gave the hate you give a glowing thumbs up and said, "Finally, a black a Black Lives Matter movie that gets it right." You know, and <laughs> I'm like, "Come on, are you fucking kidding me?" They're media rep is a, to our faces. Yeah, they're, like they really media are rep. If you don't have a sense of like politics when you when you when you blather blather, blather on about media rep, you really you, you just end up. I think really doing damage to um, not just leftists but also progressivism. I mean, this is th- these things are the enemy of progress. Basic pro- progressivism. Like, can we do something about police police violence? You know, I don't think that's necessarily a leftist position. That's not really. That's just basic progressive. It's a human rights let's, position. Let's do better. Yeah, I, that's a kind of incrementalism that I um, uh, that I'm down with. So, uh, yeah. Um, so we're at. Uh, an hour plus. Um, unfortunately, I think <laughs> Jay has dropped out of the capitalist system and his tech have died. <laughs> He's his not tech, buying any more guys. Tech yeah. came back to uh, take back the means of production. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll call it there, huh? Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, good talking to you guys, man. We'll, we should continue this discussion about politics in the future, near future. Yep, this is perfect. That's our podcast for this week. Uh, as usual, there's a lot more podcast content on planamag.com as well as articles. Um, contact us at editor.planamag at gmail.com. Uh, we've been really enjoying the feedback we've been getting so far. And uh, as usual, the most uh, important, you know, the most useful thing you can do for us if you like the pod is to subscribe. Uh, and to give us a rating. See you next week.